0: Me, Ellie Krug, welcome back to Ellie 2.0 Radio, um, which is and what I'm absolutely positive can only be the only radio show podcast about idealism and idealist hosted by a transgender woman in the entire world. I am positive there is no other show like this in the world. How do you like that? There you go. You're listening to something unique that you're not going to find anywhere else other than on here on lovely AM 950. All right. I got started off on that tangent. Uh, as usual, we have a great show. The big interview is with uh, Mickey Morissette, the editor and publisher of Minnesota Women's Press. We've had Mickey on before, but it's been a couple years and some great things have happened with MWP since then. You are going to really like hearing from Mickey you know, and if you're a woman or if you support women, you know, I'm um, incredibly important to hear what she has to say and to support Minnesota Women's Press. And in my C block, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. But here in our A block, I'm going to wade into an area that uh, I'm just going to do it, okay? I want to, where we focus on our idealist of the week. That's what's in our A block. And this week's idealist is Rashida Talib the congresswoman from Michigan's 12th congressional district. Now, before I go any further, okay, let me make a couple of things clear. All right. Before I go any further. First, I believe that Israel has an absolute right to exist. I do. I believe, I believe Israel as a country should be protected, should exist. It should be, you know, functioning democracy. Absolutely. Second, calls for the genocide or erasure of Jews is totally anti semitic and is something that's completely abhorrent. Now, you know, and I know that I know there there this is an area that's replete with a lot of emotion, okay? but for my Jewish listeners out there, please know and for the allies of Israel and Jews, please know I am I care about you, I believe it you know I I do, okay. That being said, though, okay, you know, I also believe that the Palestinian people have the right to live without daily violence and oppression in their lives. Okay, that—that's because I believe that all humans, regardless who, of who they are, should be able to live without daily violence or oppression. Okay, I and so Palestinians would be in that category of all humans. Now that gets us to uh, Rashida Talib. First, the basics. She is presently forty-seven years old. She was born in Detroit to Palestinian parents who immigrated to the U.S. Um, one of those parents was born on the East Bank of Jerusalem; the other was born in Ramallah. Her father ended up um, outside of Detroit, working at a Ford Motor Company factory. Okay, became a factory worker. And Rashida Talib is also part of a huge family. Now, get this: she is the oldest of fourteen. Children. She's also a lawyer. I don't know if those go hand in hand, but she is. Rashida Tlaib's political career began right out of college. Uh, she interned at the office of her state rep, and when he was set to retire, he urged her to run for his seat. Now, think about that. She was in her, she was like, in her twenties, and he's like, I think you should run for my seat. So, okay, and she went for it. Now, and uh, her first uh, foray into politics was not easy because she faced a Democratic primary with seven seven other challenges, challengers for the Democratic nod. And she succeeded in getting 44 percent of the primary vote, which pretty good with all those challengers. And then she went on to garner 90 percent of the vote in the general. She's in a very safe district. She continues to, to get – you know, eighty to ninety percent of the vote. Her ascension to Congress, representing the twelfth congressional district, occurred in the twenty eighteen election. Um, when elected, she was so remember twenty eighteen. You know, Trump is the president at that time. Okay, twenty eighteen. There was you know a whole lot of um, a whole lot of uh, revolt against uh, Trumpism at that point. Um, and she is one of two, only two Muslim women in Congress. Our very own Ilan Omar is the other Muslim elected person um, to Congress. Now, being of Palestinian descent, has made Rashida Tlaib the one person in all of Congress to consistently and passionately represent the interests of her district, which is heavily Muslim, heavily, uh, heavily Middle Eastern, and um, all. Also- Excuse me. It also has made her the person who can advocate for Palestinians worldwide. And as that representative, she has taken unpopular stance. Uh, Rashida Taleb supports BDS, boycott, divestiture, divestiture and sanctions against the Israeli government, not against the Israeli people, against the Israeli government. She believes the U.S. should stop giving aid to Israel while Netanyahu leads the government. She also advocates for a one-state, not a two-state solution. And By the way, um, to give you an example of how a one-state solution would work, think about South Africa. Because South Africa did not turn into a black country and a white country. It turned into one country where whites and blacks had to figure out how to govern together. OK, and South Africa is still around. Thus, um, earlier this year, a Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know who she is, introduced a censure resolution against Tlaib um, because of her various positions relative to the Middle East. Um, that, that resolution failed. But then the Republicans tried again um, and uh, and this uh, they tried after the October 7th horror, horror of what Hamas did. Uh, uh, did in Israel, okay, and and I will say that again, horror that Ham- what Hamas has done to Israelis, um, to to kill people and now to to have hostages more than a hundred still, okay, but the Republicans wanted to still censure uh, Rashida Tlaib, and in early November, um, the House voted two thirty four to one eighty eight in favor of censure. That was all the Republicans along with two Democrats. Uh, claiming that uh, uh, um, Talib um, didn't condemn Hamas ha- Hamas harshly enough, and because of her use of the phrase "from the river to the sea," which which has been a phrase that some associate with anti Semitic uh, uh, ideals, uh, and Rashida Talib uh, does not. Be- you know that's not why she uses the phrase, but nonetheless, it's a touch phrase. We understand that and yes Ellie Krug is still high- highlighting her as an idealist you're going to hear why in a second but but she 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 is okay interestingly earlier this year because of her statements against the Israeli government the republicans also removed Ilan Omar so because Ilan Omar spoke up against the Israeli government not the Jewish people the Israeli government the republicans removed Ilan Omar from her seat in the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So in the span of what? Uh, I don't know. 10 months? 11 months? OK. The two, the only two Muslim women in Congress have been published, uh, punished by the Republicans. Remember, I'm a unifier, not a divider. But this fact, OK, um, and it's at the hands of the Republicans. Also, the Democrats joined in again against uh, Rashida Tlaib. Now – Imagine being Rashida Tlaib, someone trying to speak up for Palestinians who, who in the world collectively lack a voice. And that speaking up that she is engaged in has made her a target. But I'm, I ask you, OK, I'm going to play a clip of what she said before the censure, before she got censured. I want you to hear her impassioned plea to give Palestinians basic rights and dignity. This is her speech uh, on November 8th prior to the censure vote.
1: I'm the only Palestinian-American serving in Congress, Mr. Chair, and my perspective is needed here now more than ever. I will not be silenced, and I will not let you distort my words. Folks forget I'm from the city of Detroit, the most beautiful blackest city in the country where I learn to speak truth to power even if my voice shakes. Trying to bully or censor me won't work because this movement for a ceasefire is much bigger than one person. I can't believe I have to say this, but Palestinian people are not disposable. We are human beings, just like anyone else. My city, my grandmother, like all Palestinians, just wants to live her life with freedom and human dignity, we all deserve. Speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. The cries of the Palestinian and, ch- Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me. Why what I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you all. We cannot lose our shared humanity, Mr. Chair. I hear the voices of advocates in Israel, in Palestine, across America, and around the world for peace. I am inspired by their courageous, the courageous survivors in Israel who have lost loved ones, yet are calling for a ceasefire and the end to violence. I am grateful to the, to the people in the streets for the peace, peace movement, with countless Jewish Americans across the country standing up and lovingly saying, not in our name. We will continue to call for a ceasefire, Mr. Chair, for the immediate delivery of critical humanitarian aid to Gaza, for the release of all hostages and those arbitrarily detained, and for every American to come home. We will continue to work for a real lasting peace that upholds human rights and dignity of all people and centers in peaceful coexistence between Israelis and Palestinians and censures no one, no one, and ensures that no person, no child has to suffer or live in fear of violence
0: that that was an idealist speaking. That's what that was. You know, we can't lose our shared humanity. Uh, Palestinians are not disposable. And most poignantly, that a Palestinian child crying sounds like a Jewish child crying. That's why... This week, Rashida Tlaib is our featured idealist of the week. Thank you. All right, when we come back, we're going to do the big interview with uh, Mickey Morissette. You're going to love that interview. And then we'll go on to my C-block where I'll talk about my work as an idealist. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at Krug at gmail. We'll be back in a sec. I
1: want to take the breath that's true And she was lying in the grass And she could hear the highway
0: breeze. And we're back! LE 2.0 Radio and I am thrilled for the big, big, big interview. I have with me the the one and only Mickey Morissette, who is the editor, the curator, the you know the backbone of Minnesota Women's Press. Mickey, welcome back to Le Two Radio. I am thrilled to have you here.
2: Thank you very much, Ellie. Glad to always glad to talk to you.
0: Yeah, well, it's been uh, almost two years since we had you on last, and you know, and and uh, I. We should probably put a disclaimer in for the audience just so they know that I am a huge, huge supporter of Minnesota Women's Press. I've contributed to you financially. I've given you my time. You have have posted about me. Right now there's a wonderful – a wonderful piece you wrote about my time uh, being interviewed at as a Zellius Hellion at um, Mixed Blood uh, Theater. So we just need to make sure the audience understands. I, I am very intertwined with Minnesota Women's Press and are, proudly so to do that. OK, we are,
2: we are a mutual fan club.
0: <laughs> there you go. Well, listen, um, because I know that my reader, you know, my listenership um, changes uh, from time to time, hopefully expanding across the world, hopefully. Um, why don't you – let's begin by giving everybody a snapshot of what Minnesota Women's Press is all about and then in the process of that, OK, I'd love for you to talk about when you you know assume the helm of the magazine and how it has evolved, which is like the absolute right word uh, since you took it over. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> sure. Thank you. You know, and I also realized, you know, as we were setting the date for this, I didn't realize it, but it was a, it was basically six years ago today that I bought the magazine from the predecessors. Uh, uh, the magazine uh, has been around since 1985. It started off as a newspaper bi bi-weekly uh, transformed during the recession of 2008 into a monthly magazine for cost cutting, has survived a bunch of bumps since then, and then, yeah, I took it from kathy and norma uh bought it from them in uh, december of 2017 first issue was january of 2018 and since then the evolution because i come from a deep journalism background um have a lot of social uh, interest in social issues and the long-standing issues that we have not solved (laughs) um And again, looking back at our archives, we've been talking about gender-based violence and a whole variety of things for decades. Uh, We've started to have, um, we've had much more uh, expansive, diverse storytellers in our pages. Um, We work with at least 50 different people every single year. It used to be 100, but pandemic did trim our budget a bit and um, we haven't been able to run as many stories, but uh, the big thing is we're spending a lot of concentrated time, especially with the new change Alliance. I, I should go back. The magazine itself has a monthly theme every month uh, that is different. So we're uh, just closing our January issue which is about artists. Our February issue is going to be about housing Uh, Eventually, we're going to have a May issue on mental health. So, you know, we dive into things on a month-to-month basis. Changemakers Alliance started in 2022 so that we could do continuous online coverage of certain issues, gender-based violence, diversity in politics, uh, what's something we call Echolusion, which is kind of up your alley, which is about how, how to create healthy collaborations um, especially around um, our ecosystems of people and planet. Uh, and then we're also very focused on reimagining public safety. There's amazing people trying to transform the way we do justice and the legal system. And we've been able to do a lot of work on those stories this year.
0: Okay. Well, and, and um, one of the things that you've also done is you've expanded the footprint of the magazine. So it formerly was – pretty much twin cities based right and now you're you're you know reaching out into greater minnesota in a variety of ways can you talk about that and and when you say the change maker alliance i know really what that is can you can you explain really what that phraseology is and maybe you might want to throw in a little bit about the badass women too
2: yes (laughs) i love the badass women um So, yes, one of the things that I wanted to do just prior to the pandemic hitting is start having conversations in greater Minnesota towns about the things that we're writing about. That, of course, slowed it. Plus, then we had budget issues and everything got slowed. We're now this year starting to we've done uh, a couple places where I call it home. I'm just tangenting all over the place. I call it hometown values and vision. I've gone to Ortonville, which is near the South Dakota border, had a great group of people organized there by a local woman, Edie Barrett. Um, And we sat down with about, I sat down with about 13, 15 different women that represent a lot of things from farming to entrepreneurship, to housing, to, um, Uh, There were a couple of things I've forgotten now. But anyway, uh, we've we've been able to generate stories from those conversations. We will continue to do so in 2024 from the people I met there. Did a similar thing in Worthington a few months ago. A lot of issues there, Uh, especially heard from 30. We had 30 of the immigrant population there came together in a conversation for a few hours. Um, We're starting to find the funding so that we can get up to Grand Rapids, Bemidji. We want to get into Faribault. We're probably going to do something soon in St. Cloud. We want to get up to Duluth. So, so yes, we're now finally starting to have these conversations so that not only are Uh, readers are coming from around the state in a bigger way. But um, we've always tried to do stories from around the state in the last few years, but we will actually have much deeper relationships with people.
0: Well, and you're finding, aren't you, that, I mean, these are women, and um, particularly in greater Minnesota, I mean, women obviously are the backbones of many, many different kinds of endeavors, but they – I mean, there are challenges about being, certainly, being a woman leader uh, in Greater Minnesota, and, yeah. and and if you're a diverse person on top of all of that, you know. Um, I just, you know, I uh, in in the magazine you have a, a piece about um, a um, Asian American artist by the name of is it Nancy Valentine? You know, and I, re- I I've actually reached out to her today to see if she'd be on the show, um, but she she talked about growing up in, um, and I'm forgetting which town.
2: Fergus Falls. Fergus
0: Falls. You know, and you know, uh, with a you know a mother uh, who is uh, a Ch- and a sibling who are Chinese and. You know, and and the challenges that she had, and and she's translated that into be, being an artist and and, and being a, a painter, which I thought was just incredible. But but this is what you're finding. So what MWP is doing is giving voice to people who have been essentially invisible. Am I am I right about that?
2: Yes. Um. It's always been our goal. It's start. The magazine started in 1985 because the founders, Molly and Glenda, realized that women themselves were invisible. We were not seen as experts in the newspaper stories. We were basically relegated to the lifestyle section. Yeah,
0: right, right.
2: So that's kind of the genesis. So we've kind of continued that on. And now, um, you know, again, there are so many amazing, as you said, women leading solutions in small communities all over And and small cities are all over the state. Um, And our goal and mission is to amplify those voices as much as possible. The step that I think we're trying to take in 2024, and I have to give you a lot of credit for this, Ellie, because you have been the one that has taught me about how much fear holds back progress, Mm -hmm. basically. Because we have voices to amplify, but it, 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 it doesn't help unless you're also getting those voices heard in their communities where people are maybe still afraid of them or don't understand the differences and therefore they shun or they um, push away uh, any sense of curiosity or learning. So that's a big piece of what we're going to be trying to do more in 2024 is how do you lift stories off the pages to lead into actual conversations, something that you are doing in a different sort of way with, with your workshops. What we're going to try to do as well is to get into those communities, learn directly what people are concerned about, afraid of, what solutions they have for bonding and connecting. And, you know, we just, that's, that's what media can do, and we just rarely do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, put a pin in that. I want to make sure that our listeners uh, understand that you have some uh, real cred here, okay? I mean, you, you've been a writer all of your life. You've written for Time, Inc., you've written for the New York Times. And then at a time when single motherhood, uh really was not the way it is now at a time when it had tremendous stigma okay you wrote a book about single motherhood you know which yeah. is still getting published and still available you know what uh, tell us the title of the book so uh, listeners could hear the, uh, get that
2: <laughs> yes thank you for that um i did i wrote a book called choosing single motherhood the thinking woman's guide what I was certainly finding is that people like myself who were had been focused on careers, I was living in New York City for a long time um and you know you get to a certain point and you realize, "Oh my God, if I'm gonna have children, I, <laughs> I should have them now, but we haven't necessarily stuck with a partner um so more and more women, professional women, have been turning to the idea of, well, I can maybe do this alone. some of right. them. Not to, but I did write a book called Choosing Single Motherhood to talk about the things that you have to think about. And then from that, and then again, this has led to where I'm at now with Minnesota Women's Press. I did workshops, about 25 workshops around the country. I did one in London, I did one in Toronto. And then that's where again you, you know, as you know, you get really into the heart of what people are concerned about. And it's different in place to place. I mean, the women in Chicago were really concerned about deviating from a traditional family norm. Um, women in San Francisco didn't care about that at all um, <laughs> and just wanted to know how they could like use use um, turkey baster basically to create <laughs> do the whole thing themselves. <laughs> and then when I brought that conversation to New York City, I said, do you, should we be talking more about at-home insemination? And somebody said, we don't even like to do our – own nails. Why would we want to do that? (laughs) So so part of it is you do exactly why we need to go into different communities around Minnesota. Everybody's got different concerns and issues. And so the power of having a small group of people in a room and talking, as you know, we're not always very vulnerable. And you can only do that when you're together in a small group, and and not being aggressive or trying to hit somebody over the head with something, and that's kind of what where I, again I think media has has a role. Um, we we know a lot. We can bring a lot into conversations with others.
0: Well, let's talk about um, what's what's happened to local journalism, you know, and journalism in general. Okay, and how. You know the mWP model is different than than what we're finding. Tell us more about that because this you know you sent me something earlier this morning that I just thought was incredibly poignant so
2: yeah yeah I um, you know I have been in the industry for uh, at least four decades um, once I got to this spot, it has given me more opportunity to do things that I feel like we don't necessarily do well in media, but should. Um, So, you know, because journalists tend to kind of go in and get quotes and anecdotes, especially from people who are in positions of power to make Mm -hmm. decisions. Why are they making this decision? What's controversial about the decision? We spend a lot of time on crime reports, police reports, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't serve community particularly well, um, and so so especially in the in the creation of ChangeMakers Alliance, which is specifically about networking with people around the state who are trying to solve certain issues connecting them in conversation with each other so they don't feel isolated, so they can empower each other, so they can collaborate on solutions. Um, that, I think, is what journalists could be doing more of, taking what we learn and bringing them to a wider audience to have deeper, more more informed conversations than we tend to do. So, um, you know, one of the big things I've been Uh, Talking about this year is, you know, gender-based violence is one of the most pervasive crimes, but you don't hear much about it. You don't hear much in the media about trying to change um, Hmm. change the mindsets that enable that to happen. Um, We hear more about carjackings, as as again, kind of the fear that people have, um, burglary, certainly gun violence, but we're really not talking about the fact that gender-based violence affects more people than most of those things all combined.
0: Well, and at all strata, I mean, I have a mentee who is a therapist who uh, practices in, you know, very um, well-to-do burbs, you know, and what I hear from her is about how men continue. I mean, these are very powerful men, you know, tops of, you know, captains of industry. Try to control the women in their lives in a variety of ways, you know. And when you talk gender-based violence, it is a spectrum, right? Yeah. Yep. So – And it
2: is – and it is not something, the data there has not changed. We have as many incidents of domestic violence today as we did decades ago when we finally started taking it out of houses. You know, it was it was only a few decades ago people thought that was something that was just a private matter. Right. Police didn't really want to get involved. Politicians were not really involved. We now have more awareness about why that's wrong, but we haven't done anything to change it or to support the people who are experiencing it. We have shelters. But we're we're not providing the kind of therapy, um, you know, again, policing is not the solution for a lot of things. People are not survivors of all sorts of things, are not necessarily looking to the legal system in the way that we think they might, because it's not the solution. They want people to change their behavior. And that involves more conversation and therapy um, to change mindsets, because that is possible um, if we invest in it.
0: Well, Mickey, I'm watching my time, and there are two other things I want to get to before we're done. The first is it's the end of the year. Minnesota Women's Press has had a rough time, okay? You know, I sent out an appeal letter to uh, some friends earlier this year. You got some money from me, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, listeners, we cannot lose Minnesota Women's Press. I'm just here to tell you that. We cannot lose this – incredibly important publication that is uniquely doing the work that it does for women. So, Mi- ooh, I don't know what that was. Uh, maybe that was to emphasize what I just said. <laughs> the universe. <laughs> so, it was like right on cue. So, Mickey, Mickey, now you've got a way for people to give tax uh deductible contributions to MWP, and you got a way for people to just simply write a check, okay? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us how they can do that, please?
2: Yes, thank you for that opening. Um, yeah, we did, honest to God, I was uh, two months ago, we were in really rough shape, and we did think we were going to have to close the doors because we wouldn't meet. Payroll. We did put out the appeal. I contacted four people. You, one of them, who stepped up tremendously, enabled us to get through October, get through November. Um, uh, but we ha- there's so much we need to do and want to do, and we need stability to do that. So we did. We do have a couple different ways. There's, uh, we mentioned, uh, we touched on the. There's a badass membership now. People can at, at for as low as five dollars a month become a member of the badass community. <laughs> You'll get invited to us. I know. I should pause there. It's a very matter of fact thing to me now. Yeah. We have a badass community. Um, you can become a member, support the stories that we're doing around gender-based violence, public safety, diversity, and politics. At all that. You'll then also be invited to an event that we're hosting in April, um, and that's for members only. Um, it, it enables us to collect some of the people that want to participate in groups to talk about solutions and action steps for 2024. So it's not only just supporting the content that we're developing at Again, $5 a month. Some are doing it at $15 a yep. month. We have a couple different levels. It also provides for some free advertising we're and, giving to some and people. I,
0: I'm doing it at $25 a month, but go yes. on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, and then we do have now a fiscal agent. Um, and so we do have the capability of taking donations. Um, we've had some grants come in and also in the last two months that have really helped us tremendously so that we can get into 2024 and do this work. How can um, they How so, can
0: they get to the fiscal agent?
2: Yep. Uh, the best uh, thing, if you just go to womenspress.com, you're going to see on the homepage our uh, Be a Badass and it, it it gives you all of the entry points um, you could also go to women'spresscom slash be a badass um, but just go to womenspress.com and you'll find what we're doing there um, the stories that we're doing as well as what the badass community is is working towards
0: and they can find the way to do the the charitable deduction or charitable giving by going the website or going to the landing page
2: yep okay we've got, we've got three levels yep
0: okay great now, last question all of my guests get, and that is, and we've got two minutes for this. Okay. Mickey, you are an idealist. There's no doubt about it in my mind. <laughs> How did you get that way?
2: Yeah. You know, I've thought a lot, especially since I'm later in my career, and I'll make this quick because I could I'd go back to my childhood. Um, there were two pivotal moments for me. Uh, one being I was able to interview a Holocaust survivor that was my mother's humanities professor when I was about 12 years old. We were studying the Holocaust in school. She said, why don't you talk to this person about his personal experience? It was amazing. He Mm -hmm. told me so much that I had no comprehension of. And it was amazing that he trusted me with this. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we love first-person narratives at at Minnesota Women's Press. And a lot of that for me started there. The other thing was that my dad quit smoking cold turkey because I wrote him a persuasive letter also when I was around 12. So right there I was stamped that with words Mm -hmm. and conversation, you can really reach in Mm -hmm. and, and not only... touch people with the stories that you can tell from that, but you yourself get transformed. So... So um, so that's kind of how I started and have been on the path all along. I've had a lot of jobs that did nothing useful. <laughs> I am now in this twilight of my career at this really great place, and I am very excited about our April 13th event, which is going to be looking at our 39 years of voice and vision um, that will set the stage for a couple things to come.
0: Well, I will be there, so just so you know.
2: (laughs) I'm counting on it. Actually, you spoke at our very first badass conversation two years ago.
0: I did, and if people go on the website, they can find – you know what? I looked at that the other day, uh, that talk that I gave, which, which, of course, without notes, and and you know what? It was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Ellie – not many odds or ums. Good yeah. job, girl. You
2: know, you know how to talk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it also is touching. So, yeah. you know, and so if I don't say like so it. myself. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, indeed. It is great. Well, Mickey, it's just, you know, we could just, you and I could just yeah. talk and, and, you know, we do that anyway sometimes over uh, cocktails but listen um i just uh, first of all thanks for being back on LE2.0 radio secondly thank you you know for what you're doing you and your team you have a mighty team of you know it's not big but it's a mighty team of people and please let them know that i praise them okay for all of their collective work you know and you know you have me Okay, as long as I'm breathing, you know I'm an MWP supporter. I'm a Mickey Morissette supporter as well. So, um, thanks for being on the show. I've really appreciated having you here.
2: Thanks again for the conversation, and I appreciate everything, everything that you're doing for us.
0: You're welcome. Okay, all right. Have a great holidays too. All right. Thank you. Okay, appreciate listeners, it. that was Mickey Morissette, uh, the editor and uh, the editor and the owner of Minnesota Women's Press. If you like what you hear, okay, about Minnesota Williams Press, go to their website, okay? You know, contribute to them. We need to support the, this organization, this magazine, because it's unique, it's doing incredibly important work, and it is idealistic. All right, we'll be back in a second. We'll do my C block where I'll talk about my work, which about my work as an idealist, which uh, it's going to be depressing. Okay, bye-bye. And we're back. LE 2.0 Radio. Um, Mickey Morissette, don't get me started. Minnesota w- w- Women's Press, don't get me started. Okay. All right. C Block, here we go. Um, I had a listener uh, email me this week um, because she heard me talk last week about what's going on um, uh, with the pushback against uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh And uh, she emailed me with some really supportive words and told me to hang in there. And I really appreciated that. And by the way, if anybody ever wants to email me, you can. Uh, It's lejkrug at gmail.com. And so that listener, thank you. I really appreciate you doing that. That was very sweet. And unfortunately, I'm going to talk again about what's going on against uh, DEI stuff in the country. I'm sure some of you caught, but I'm probably not all of you.  … about what happened this week at the University of Wisconsin. Now, you know that uh, Wisconsin is headed – they've got a Democratic governor, uh, Tony Evers, but they've got a Republican – or controlled legislature. And the Republicans decided that they would um, hold hostage uh, all the raises for 34,000 University of Wisconsin employees … Um, and the funding for, you know, $347 million for a new engineering building on the Madison campus for UW. They, they, they decided they'd hold all of that hostage until the University of Wisconsin stopped all of its, you know, essentially gutted its DEI program. And in fact, the Republicans, DEI stands for diversity, equity, inclusion, but the Republicans believe it stands for division, exclusion, and indoctrination. That's, what they call DEI, and so uh, it came down to whether or not um, the regents, the Wisconsin regents for the university system, whether they would accept um, what the Republican legislature was saying about essentially gutting DEI in Wisconsin. And and at first, uh, the regents voted uh, last Saturday, okay, a week ago, they voted eight to nine to reject. This plan from the Republicans and then pressure set in and on Wednesday, um, the regents backtracked and they voted 11 to 6 to accept this deal – with the Republicans, so the deal was: we will give you pay raises for thirty-four thousand people and the new three hundred and forty-seven million-dollar engineering building, if um, if the University of Wisconsin, quote unquote, freezes DEI staffing. You know what that means: cuts forty DEI uh, positions with, throughout the whole system. Um, uh, that they agreed to and their quote target of opportunity program to recruit diverse faculty. So, in other words. We're going to take away. We, you have to end your efforts to get more diverse faculty members teaching a bunch of white kids, okay? You, you've got to end doing that, okay? And as well that the university agreed uh, to – the regents and the university system agreed to create a leadership position to focus on, quote-unquote, conservative political thought. You know what that means, that means uh, Rufo from down in, down in Florida with uh, the college down there, uh, the new college. Uh, that means to have a position like, you know, we're going to bring in our conservative speaker, OK, our conservative leader to have conservative thought on the camp. And you know where this is headed because the regents agreed to this hostage deal. And afterward, um, the speaker of the House said, it's just the beginning. We're going to take everything related to DEI out of the entire university system. And I'm sure that they're not going to stop there. They'll probably end up going towards all the schools as well. Um, and just this week in Oklahoma, the governor just signed a bill, you know, ending diversity, equity and inclusion throughout Oklahoma's entire – I think they've got 40, 34 schools or 24 schools or something like that – their entire state – you know, higher education system. This is a harbinger because a year from now, everyone, we're going to have probably 20, at least 20 states that will have done this. Now, apart from this affecting Ellie Krug, okay, because my you know, as you heard my my ability to go in and talk to places, yeah, it's about making a living, but it's also more importantly, as you just heard Mickey Morissette say, it's about me being able to help convince people to think differently. Okay, um, so it impacts me, all right. But what about you know the the students of color that are in these systems? You hear that we're taking all this stuff. How do you think that makes them feel? Okay, you know, and and. It, It's like systemic racism getting re-triggered. That's exactly what it is. All right. I cannot end on a a negative note. I do want you to know this before I got to go, and that is this. Sunday, a week ago, you know, tomorrow, I was at Christ the King Lutheran Church in Bloomington to talk about, Living Authentically, a little bit about my story and other stuff. We had 40, 45 people in the room. I think the average age in the room must have been about 65 years old. And you know what? Those folks were so kind to me, so welcoming. I got questions from them that were just really great questions. They, I had people coming up and hugging me afterwards. It seems to be a recurring theme. And it was just – I just want you to know, okay, it does work. It does work when you go and and just show up as a human. People open their hearts. They're willing to be vulnerable. All right, I got to go. That's a positive note. Big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. He's always doing stuff. He had to do math today. To my audience, hey, listen, I'll be back next week, okay? Right before Christmas, you'll get me, okay? Because we'll do one more show. But between now and when you hear my voice next, will you do me a favor? Will you go out and make the world a better place? Go and do something good for another human. Okay? Ellie Krug, over and out. Thanks.